As you're taking your seats, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 29. As you're turning there, let me thank you for your prayers this week as I have been traveling. We first went down uh, last weekend for Joni's brother's wedding, and it's a, it's a joy to be with family and to have that joyous occasion uh, that Saturday. And then I just took the the opportunity to fly back to New York City with my daughter so we could celebrate a little bit beforehand her birthday. And so that was the beginning of this week. And then the remainder of the week, I was able to spend time with our beloved Cochran family. Uh, they send you all their greetings and their love. Thank you for your consistent, prayerful support, financial support of the ministry there in England. And there are, I think, many exciting things ahead for them in future ministry there, whether that's in Cheltenham, whether it's in Gloucester, wherever, wherever it may be. We pray that the Lord would continue to bless them, but not only them, uh, those that they work with, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales. So keep them all in your prayers. So thank you for your prayers for me. Enough of that. Let's focus on the Word of God. First Samuel chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. You notice before we read further, we are picking back up not on chapter 28, but we're picking back up at the end of chapter 27. We're now going back to the story of David and away from the story with Saul. Verse 2. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commander of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul? king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years since he deserted to me. I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest the battle he, in the battle he becomes an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord, notice, as the Lord, as Yahweh, this, this pagan, Speaking of the God of Israel, as the Lord Yahweh, as He lives, you've been honest. Really? Hardly. You've been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's don't approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies 
of my Lord, the king. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you're blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go with us to battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. The Word of God for the people of God. In what has been termed a veritable manual for would-be feared and yet successful tyrants, the Italian Renaissance writer Machiavelli laid out for such a feared but successful prince He laid out for the prince all sorts of military configurations he could use in order to attack another city, take over another territory, another principality. Machiavelli told the prince, you can have your own troops, well-armed troops, and they can do the job. Machiavelli said, or you could have your troops and you could have allies. Or you could have your troops and allies and mercenaries, or maybe mercenaries, just mercenaries, soldiers for hire. And Machiavelli, in his manual for the successful but feared tyrant, had his opinions on those options. He loved the idea of having a well-armed army and not having to rely upon allies. And he most definitely didn't like for a prince to rely on mercenaries. Soldiers for hire. You know there are still many soldiers for hire out there. You know that, don't you? You know that in the state of North Carolina, this is a huge complex and base for a particular soldiers for hire company where there's much training that goes on. You do know that probably one of the largest employers in the United States is a mercenary company. They're still there. And Machiavelli thought, They are bad news. Don't use them. Now why did Machiavelli say, don't use mercenaries to the the feared but successful prince? He said, don't use them, one, because they're fighting for money. They're not fighting for hearth and home. And when the battle gets tough... If they're not fighting for their loved ones in their own home, they might easily do what? Flee. Go. But there's another reason. Uh, and, And the other reason is this. If you are hiring soldiers to fight for you, what happens when those soldiers go to war with those they're kin to? What happens when they go to war with their own people? for you, for a paycheck. They're dangerous. So Mr. Feared, but successful prince, just don't go there. The lords or the commanders of the Philistines got what Machiavelli would get centuries later. You can't trust 
a mercenary. And in their getting what Machiavelli got centuries later, as Ralph Davis, and I'm relying a lot upon Ralph Davis today, you'll forgive me, it's been a long week. As Ralph Davis said, in that choice we see the quiet, the surprising, and the tenacious ways of our merciful God. The quiet and surprising and tenacious mercy of God. Quiet. Notice, there's no blinking sign saying, and Yahweh used these pagans and caused these pagan Philistines to fear having David and his men with the troops, lest David and his men turn upon the Philistines. I want you to know it was the Lord doing this. It was the Lord who brought these pagans to this position. You don't see that, do you? We don't hear that. No blaring trumpets saying this was Yahweh who was at work doing this. No blinking lights. No hand-fisted editorial comments. Quiet mercy. Quiet mercy. Davis uses a really interesting illustration at this point. He says, think about the young lady and the young man who are starting to kind of like each other. They're wondering about this relationship. They're walking along and the, and, and the young man is really wanting to hold her hand. And he's walking along, he's really wanting to hold her hand, and yet he's scared. What if I hold her hand? She yanks it away, she thinks I have bad intentions, and what's going to happen here? And, uh, but he really wants to hold her hand. And then all of a sudden, their hands just happen to brush by, and a moment after they brush by, the hands clasped together. He said, what a beautiful thing that is, right? It, it, it's almost what well, it is. Silent, quiet, it just happens. Versus, the boy wants to cast those sort of ideas and feelings. He says, wait a second, wait a second, let's sit down, sit down, sit down. Sit down. Would you sit down just for a moment? I want to ask you something. Do you think it might be possible? I'm not sure if it would be, but do you think it might be possible that we might could kind of put our two hands together and hold hands a little bit? Kind of clunky, isn't it? It's much more beautiful when it happens silently. Such is God's mercy here to David. It's a quiet beauty here. And it's a quiet beauty that every believer knows. It's, it's quiet beauty of, that we've all, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have sensed, we have experienced in our Christian lives. And it's best seen in hindsight. The Lord spared me of what I deserved. No blaring trumpets. No blinking lights. No narrator jumping in with radio voice saying, and now God will keep Lee from doing what his stupidity would have had him do. None of that. Divine mercy is often incredibly quiet. Christian Paul's there. Take note there. God's mercies have been tender and quiet in your life. You know, I, th I think it's, it's a good thing for us to note the ways of the Lord with us. 
and to seek in ways appropriate for us to mimic Him. So when you have opportunity to be merciful, that is not give to somebody else what they deserve. When you have an opportunity to be merciful, be merciful, but don't blow your trumpet. Let it be quiet. Let it be tender. Let it be quiet. It's quiet and it's a surprising mercy that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 29. Quiet and surprising. I mean, although by now I suppose we should say it shouldn't be surprising to us. Who does God use to spare David and his men from plunging their swords into fellow Israelites? Who spares them from that? Pagan Philistines. The enemies of God's people. The taunters of Israel and Israel's God. Don't, don't forget Goliath taunting the troops of Israel. These are those who hated Yahweh, although Achish seems to begin to acknowledge Yahweh. But God uses these taunters of Israel to spare David of where his stupidity was taking him. And not only him, all of his men. His, his enemies are becoming his saviors and they preach a gospel of sorts to them. What do they say? Verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, here's gospel. This is good news to David, whether he knew it or not. Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens, thousands. That's gospel, that's good news and yet David didn't recognize this good news, did he? He was upset. Why can't I go? Davis tells a familiar children's story about the surprising nature of God's mercy. It's a story about a, a very prayerful but fairly poor woman and her neighbor. And the, the neighbor was an atheist, despised his prayerful neighbor, this poor lady. And one day, the windows uh, to her house was open, and the atheist neighbor could hear his neighbor down on her knees and praying, and she was praying for her daily bread. And he comes up with this wise idea, this wise cracking idea. I'm just going to go make a fool of her. So off he goes. He goes down to the local baker. He buys a couple of loaves of bread. He comes back, puts the bread in front of her door, knocks, and then goes hides to the side. She opens up the door, and there's the bread. She had just been praying for her daily bread. And there it was. 
And she's praising God. She's thanking God for, for giving her that bread. And Allie pops. God, I'm the one who just bought those and brought those to you. You're believing in a myth. It was me that answered your prayer. And she said, oh no, it was God. It was the Lord who answered me prayer, even though he used a devil to do it. God's ways are oftentimes surprising, aren't they? He'll use the devil to answer our prayers. He'll use Philistines to save David and his men. Quiet, surprising mercy of God. And we also see that it's a tenacious mercy. Tenacious, I love that word, don't you? Sounds like what it means. Tenacious. God's mercy hangs on. It, it's persistent. If I might humbly put it this way, tenacious is like, it's like a dog, a hungry dog. And there's this perfectly cooked, bone-in ribeye. And that dog does what? Chomps down. You try to take that ribeye from that dog. It's not happening, is it? Because the dog is what? Tenacious. God is tenacious. Davis, once again, how strong, tenacious, and unletgoable Yahweh's mercy is. Yahweh's not short-tempered with his people. His mercy and his patience are not exhausted when we choose our foolish Philistias. Some of us have a tendency to construct and believe in a God made in our own image. Who went, when once one of his children has botched a sec section of their life, goes into a huff, as we would, and out of holy glee abandons him to fry in his own juice. Yet is that the God and Savior of David, servant of Yahweh? No, God's ways are not our ways. God's mercy, that is, his not giving you what you deserve. God's mercy is tenacious. Clings, it holds on, it does not let go. Quiet, surprising, tenacious. Yes, we see in this story a depiction of the ways of our God, a depiction that should encourage every single Christian who's struggling, battling with his or her own stupidity, stubbornness, sin. But something else is going on in this, in this text. Particularly as we read this story in its context. I don't know if you noticed, but the author of, of Samuel is, 
using what uh, writers of page turners use. He's using a particular, a particular ploy tool. And if, if you've read a page turner, you know, real short chapters, right? Multiple plot lines, right? And you read one short chapter and you, you're, you're following the story of this plot and then the next chapter, what happens? You go to another plot line, right? It keeps you guessing. Now you've got to read that chapter because you want to get back to what happens to the previous plot. And so you go to the next and there's another one. And then you get to maybe that, that one. And then you're wondering what happened to this one. And you read the next chapter and before, before long you've read the whole book in one night, right? It's, it's what uh, page-turning authors do. That's what the author of Samuel's doing. He's telling us the story of David and he leaves us, right? And then he takes that diversion and Thank the Lord, Lee was in, where was I? I was in Georgia last week, and Nathan got that text to preach. Thankfully, I didn't have to preach about the medium of indoor. That was a pause. Now we come back to this next chapter, back to the story of, of David. Now, what's going on here? Why employ this strategy? Well, just as being a good author to keep you interested, keep it going. But there's something more here. I think the author wants us to contrast these two men. Saul, David. He's wanting us to contrast the anointed of the Lord. Both men anointed to be king. And we know that Saul, that tall, good-looking country boy who became king and yet... When times got tough and when God didn't meet his timetable, he took upon himself to do those things or have those things done for him that he could do instead of waiting for the word of the Lord to come. And then that Saul who wouldn't hear the word of the Lord and wouldn't hear the word of the Lord, and wouldn't hear the word of the Lord. And finally, now the masses of the Philistine armies are gathered, and he wants to hear the word from the Lord, and now he won't go through godly channels, and he'll go through any channel he can get. And he gets a word, doesn't he? A word of judgment. And it's fitting. Notice how chapter 28 ends. It's fitting. Saul goes out in what? Verse 25. And she, the medium, put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose, and then they went away that night. Saul departing with a word of judgment at night. Now, notice how chapter 29 ends. So David set out with his men early in the morning. Early in the morning. God's mercies are new every morning. Saul goes out at night to face judgment. David, by the tender mercy of God, is sent out in the morning because a greater anointed one is saving him. Neither Saul or David are ones in whom you place your trust. 
Saul, of course not. David, foolish David, of course not. We're left longing for another anointed one. And this chapter is about mercy. Why can we, why can you hope for quiet, surprising, tenacious mercy? Mercy's undeserved, right? By its very nature, it's undeserved. You can't say, God, give me mercy. I deserve it. It would be owed. It wouldn't be mercy. And yet we can hope for such a quiet and surprising and tenacious mercy because there is another anointed one who voluntarily went out at night into Gethsemane to Golgotha into the grave to suffer the judgment David deserved and you and I deserve. And we can hope for a quiet and surprising and tenacious mercy because that same anointed one not only went out at dark to receive the judgment you deserve, but burst forth from the spice tomb early at morning's light. So that you might not merely receive mercy, you might receive what? Grace. God's rich, glorious grace. Eternal life. Forgiveness of your sins. Being placed in God's family. Declared perfectly righteous. Set apart as holy. Worked holiness in you by His Spirit. To one day, there will be no sin in you on that great incoming day of the Lord when your body will be resurrected and perfected and your soul will be perfected and body and soul you will be with the Lord forever. But don't presume upon it. Don't say in your heart, well... I'm glad that's true, Pastor Lee, that God is merciful and gracious. Therefore, if He's merciful and gracious, I'm just going ahead and go off and do stupid things and sinful things and live my life whatever way I want to live it. And then when the consequences come, He's going to bail me out. He'll come along and bail me out. If you love Christ, you can't think that way, can you? You don't want to think that way, do you? The God of quiet, surprising, and tenacious mercy, brothers and sisters, let me warn you, will allow His children who are found in Christ to nevertheless experience some of the temporal and earthly consequences of their sins. And the continuing saga of David will show us that, right? You know enough about that story, don't you? And yet the point of this story is mercy. See, though our sin be great, though our foolishness be utterly staggering, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. His mercy is more. This great new hymn, oh, I wish I'd known this about a month ago, would have had us learning it 
and, and I would, would have had us ready for it. But let me give you the lyrics. It's a modern hymn by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, are, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. And everybody say with me, His mercy is more. Let's pray. Why you are merciful with us, we cannot fathom. Not how you are merciful with others, we can't fathom. But Father, how you are merciful with us, we cannot fathom. And yet you are. Merciful and gracious. A mercy and a grace seen supremely in the beloved Jesus. Father, you're sovereign. Your spirit is sovereign. Your spirit can now come into every heart here, replacing hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. I plead with you, remove our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh. Give us hearts that beat for Christ. May no one leave this place without loving Christ placing the trust in Him, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the King. May no one go from this place thinking their sins are too many for Your mercy, because Your mercy is more. Show Your mercy upon Your people and bring everyone here to truly indeed be Your people. For I pray this, in Jesus' name, amen.